Good morning, Grace Church. How are you guys? Uh, Liz said it, you guys made it. Oh my gosh, you are the spiritual ones. The storm would not hold you back. I knew it wasn't going to be a big deal. I knew it, I knew it, I knew it. For some of you, I told you so. Well, welcome. Hillary cannot hold us down. Uh, if you are just joining us, if you're new here, congratulations to you. Like, who comes to church when Hillary is on the prowl? You did. So, welcome, everyone. Uh, but if you're new and just joining us, we've actually been going through the book of Acts since Easter. Before that, we went through the entire book of Mark. So we normally do uh, go through a, a book of the Bible, but we started to, or we wanted to pause in the summer for a little mini series, and so that's what this is. This is the tail end of a mini series called "Live No Lies," based on a book from John Mark Comer, um, and it's been awesome. I've really enjoyed it. Uh, I hope it's been impactful more than helpful, but transformative for you. Um, you could still buy the book, go and read it. I did Audible and the book; that was helpful. Um, but it's been great. The premise of the book is this, that there are three enemies of the soul uh, that rob you and steal away your peace and your connection with the Lord. And so the three enemies are the devil, the flesh, and the world. And so week one, uh, people who were new came in and they walked into the devil. And they're like, why did I come to church today? Um, but it was still good. And we, we talked about how the devil's, the goal of the devil is death and to end life. And the means to which the devil accomplishes this goal is to spread lies uh, to us and to uh, offer and suggest lies. And then when we either believe in those lies or even if we don't logically believe and we start walking and living as if they're true, we then, and it plays out in what we call the flesh, which is what last week was, the second enemy. And so today, as we uh, dive into the last one, we, we are talking about what it looks like in our, in our world, in our culture, in our society, when a bunch of us are, are living in the flesh, having adopted those lies. The first week, we had you write down lies that you are believing or living out as if they're true. And remember last week I had a bucket, three buckets full of all these lies that you said, I'm struggling with these and we are struggling with these. And there were some common themes. Uh, well, we, last week we talked about how that then plays out in our behavior, the way we communicate and just all of the things. And today uh, it's what it looks like in the real world around us in the enemy of the world and how we resist the world. Well, each message, I wanted to give us a biblical framework of each enemy. So week one, the devil, we talked about the biblical definition and the way to look at the enemy of Satan or the devil, the different names used for the devil in the Bible. And I gave you some biblical references and all those things. Last week, we talked about the flesh and did the same thing. Uh, but the flesh, the term in the New Testament just like the world in the New Testament today, can be used in different ways. And so uh, today we're going to look at three different ways that the, the world is used. But uh, one example that the book talks about is, uh, think of the word in our normal English vocabulary, the word ball. So that word can be used in all kinds of different ways, right? You, could say, you woke up this morning and you were like, hey, a hurricane is coming but I'm going to go to church and we're just going to have a ball together. You didn't think that. But if you would have, 
that would have been one way that it's used. Like, oh, we're, we had fun. It was a ball. No one uses that anymore. But they could be used that way. Or, hey, what'd you do this last weekend? I went to a masquerade ball. Uh, no one goes to those anymore. That's not a thing either. But you could use it. Maybe they are. I don't know. I'm never invited. That's what it is. <laughs> but you can go to a ball. Um, or my wife goes, hey, your son just threw a ball at the window. And I go, way to go, son. But it's a ball. So they're different usages of the same word. And so similarly, the world in Scripture, specifically in the New Testament, that term, that word is used in different ways. And so the Greek word is cosmos, and it's primarily used in three different ways. And so first is just referred to uh, as earth, addressing earth or the universe, the created planet and place to where we live. And so in, Paul talks about it in Romans 1. He says, for since the creation of what? The world, the, the world we live in and on, uh, God's invisible qualities have been clearly seen. And so it's referencing the earth, God's creation of the earth. And then the second way it's used is through the most popular Bible verse you see at football games, John 3.16. For God so loved what? The world. But that's referencing us as his created beings, humanity. We are the world in that context. And then the third one is really what we're talking about today. What the book terms as the devil's domain. And uh, Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians, so many other places. But 3.18 says, for the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. Talking about our culture and our world. Let's look at a couple other definitions so we can wrap our mind around and look at different angles of what this world is that we're talking about. The, the author, John Mark Comer, has a mentor um, from Western Seminary, and he's a popular theologian. His name is Gary Brashears. And he, in a very commentary-style way, defines the world. He says this, The world is Satan's domain, where his authority and values reign. <clears throat> Though his deception makes that hard to realize. If you are of the world, then it all seems right. And then Comer took that, and he wanted to dive into specifically some details around how we can define the world. And he gives a different definition. He says this, and I like this definition. He says, the world is a system of ideas, values, morals, practices, and social norms that are integrated in the mainstream and eventually institutionalized in a culture corrupted by the twin sins of rebellion against God and the redefinition of good and evil. I like that definition. And so now that we've looked at what the world is, both biblically, through the book, I like Comer's definition, Let's go back to our passage today. This passage, uh, one of my favorite places in Scripture, uh, the book of John, but uh, John 17 is special and it's unique because Jesus is praying to God the Father as fully human in one of his final uh, seasons and times on earth, final things he says. He is praying to God the Father for us, for his future followers, for all of us. And he says this in 15 to 18, uh, as Ray just read, he says this, I do not ask you, God the Father, to take them, us, out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. Sound familiar from previous weeks. 
as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And so Jesus prays for us and prays for us to be what? To be sent into the world. And he prays to God the Father that we would be these type of people. But in contrast, I was thinking about uh, the Apostle John and something else he wrote. And so in 1 John 2, he gives a warning to us. And it kind of looks like it's in contrast to what Jesus prayed. And he says this, Do not love the world or the things of the world. This is 1 John 2, 15 and 17. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever desires the will of God abides forever. And so this is interesting. As we look at the world, the devil's domain, we have on one hand Jesus praying to God the Father that we would be in the world. We are meant to be in the world because we can talk about the big bad world, but you say, Scott, what do we, what do, we do? Well, you're, you're not to isolate yourself and escape the world. You are to be sent into the world according to Jesus and his prayer. But then John says, okay, but you're not to love the things of the world. You're like, bro, that's not fair. <laughs> that's not fair at all. You're not to love the world itself, and that's what you know, you're, not, you're not to do. So on one hand, Jesus prays that we would be in the world. On the other hand, the Apostle John says you're not to love the things of the world. And it's kind of confusing. And what do we do with that? Are we to isolate as a Christian community? Are we, are we to leave the culture, leave the society, and go in the wilderness and create a weird cult and, and be isolated from, I don't know why I said that. That was weird. But uh, are we to isolate from the world because the world is bad and one of the enemies? Are we to run away? Or are we to do the opposite? Are we to embrace all of the things of the world? Are we to affirm everything that the world has to offer, as sadly some churches do? Or are we just being dramatic? <laughs> like, Scott, it's not that bad. Are we just being dramatic? Well, I think first we have to understand what it, what it does to us as disciples and apprentices and followers of Christ, what it does to us the world as the third enemy. The Chinese philosopher Sun Tzu, he says, you, you must know your enemy. And so we must know our enemy, the world, the devil, the flesh, and the world, in order to combat or resist or have a strategy against those enemies. Comer gives this quote that I think helps us understand that dynamic in the world and how it relates to the devil and the flesh. And he says this, and I, I, in my notes I have it broken in three different parts, but on screen it's one. He says this, everything starts with deceptive ideas or lies we believe. Put your trust and live, in, or live by about reality. Mental maps that come from the devil, not Jesus, and lead to death, not life. That sounds like the devil from the week one, right? The first enemy. But deceptive ideas get as far as they do because they appeal to what? Our disordered desires, Comer says or our flesh. That's week two, the flesh. And then he says, and then the world comes in to complete the three enemies' circular loop. Our disordered desires are normalized in a sinful society, which functions as kind of an echo chamber for the flesh, a self-validating feedback loop where we're all telling each other what we, or the flesh, wants to hear. I think this quote is key and critical to understand how these enemies 
work together. These, if they're true and, and biblical and Comer's right and the early, uh, the early followers of Christ are right from the first up to the sixth century, if they were right about these three enemies, this explains really, weird, really well how the lies come in. We live in the flesh and those fleshly things, those desires, when we live in them, they become normalized in our culture. We see things one time they were not normal and now they're normal. He says our disordered desires are normalized in a sinful society. Well, we can all, if I ask you what normal is, I probably get different definitions. Like, it just depends on who you ask, right? I, I don't think I've ever been described as normal myself. Um, and you may relate to that, I don't know. But I do think that this is a, a key concept to look at as we look at the definition of what's normal in our society against biblical truth and against what the world offers us. Think of things that aren't necessarily bad, but think of, think of language. I was raised by my grandparents. Some things they said, I'm like, I don't, I don't even know what word you just said. That's the weirdest thing I've ever heard in my life. My grandfather used to call him Pop. Pop used to say, that's malarkey. I'm like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Never say that word again. What the heck is a malarkey? He would say these terms and these words, and it was a huge generation gap. Language changes with generation. I have two teenagers now and one closely approaching, and they say these we the most weird words I've ever heard in my life. Like, Daddy, you're sus. <laughs> I'm like, what? You notice the, only the college are laughing because they know what that means? And I'm like, that's, that's dumb. I don't know what that means. That's not a full word. Look it up. You won't find it. And they're like, no, you're wrong. And then they said things like, bet. <laughs> See, only they laugh because they know what that is. I don't, I don't even know what that one means. They say cap. Is that a thing? That's a thing. Yeah. Or um, my all-time favorite, Riz. <laughs> yeah. I'm embarrassing myself a little bit. I know. I know. I'm old. I'm old. I don't, it's, some of you are like, I still have no clue what you're talking about. It's okay. That means you're old too, like me. This is normal vernacular in my teenagers' lives. And I'm like, I don't know what that means. Explain it to me. Because what if you're cussing and I don't even know? Like, they're all cuss words to me. <laughs> but seriously, the, the language changes. And those, are, those aren't bad words. Those, those are fine, I don't think. But those are, it's a new generation with a new set of language that is appealing to them and they're using. So things change over time. And that's somewhat harmless. But things that can be harmful change too. What about our morality? What about our ethics? What about family? What about love? What about all those things? Think of the sexual revolution that began in the 1960s that spun into sexual liberation in the 70s and went into the 80s, 90s, and we see it today where the definition of our sexual identity is just fluid and it's open. Where the nuclear family, that was really built on God's design and, and the Bible, the word of God, is this really fluid thing now. Like it's, it's okay if you don't have this nuclear family. That's no longer part of our value system in our culture. And what that did is it changed what the value of sex was. So when, when sex historically was part of the value system, both biblically and in our culture at the time, 
that it was between a man and a woman in, in the confines of, of, a, of a marriage and a covenant union, a biblical union even, is now just kind of open. And that's a sensitive subject, and I know there's some disagreement there, and that, that's okay. But there is a difference between how the society and culture has changed these things versus what God's word says, what God's truth says, where his heart is and what his design was for us to flourish as humans and to flourish as his followers. Think of the word, I'm spiritual. <laughs> but it's funny because as a pastor, you'd be like, oh, you're a pastor. Well, I'm really spiritual. And nowadays, I have no idea what that means. Because it used to mean be tied to God of the Bible, right? It used to be this thing where I am spiritual because I have the Holy Spirit of the Bible inside of me. And that creates in me this spirituality and this connection between God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Nowadays, my Peloton instructor is like, let's be spiritual. And I'm like, shut up. Like, tell me to pedal harder. Don't talk to me about life. Like, bro, you know nothing. You're 12. Come on. I was mean. It was too far. I'm sorry. But the, the terms change. The values change in our culture. And things that once weren't normal now become normal. And instead of looking at biblical truth and having this guidepost of how to think and live and speak and believe, we run with culture. So how does this happen? Sociologists and even uh, psychologists have been studying this stuff, and they found that behaviors, both good and bad, they spread like a virus through media and friends and workplaces, and, and it spreads like wildfire. This, these new languages, these new terms, these new ways and freedoms of living life, they, they spread. Just to th think like when you're at work or you're at home and, and someone yawns and you have this impulse to yawn. I mean, that's very micro, but on a larger scale, when, when there's a behavior that becomes normal, we have this tendency as people, although we want to be individ, individualistic, we follow the tribe. That's just kind of ingrained inside of all of us. We want to follow kind of what the majority is doing to feel accepted and loved and normal and in all of our things. Think of when you uh, hang out with people who eat really well you're less likely to eat junk. That's just true. We were in Guatemala last year, and the only other group that was at the place we were at was this Christian group of guys who were online Christian fitness influencers. Like, they all had these, like, hundreds of thousands of followers working out online. And we'd, we'd hear them at, like, 5 a.m. doing these workouts, and we're like, who are you people? You're so weird. But we got to know them, and they were really cool. But at night, like we're like, we can't eat all this junk in front of those guys because, you know, that you know they'll judge us. But think about how we're influenced by the larger group, or by other groups, or by other people in the workplace. And what about gossiping at work or being rude or like me? I'm uber sarcastic. Even ask any of the staff in the office. I'm sarcastic. I need to tone it down. I'm trying to repent. But think about that. It creates this sarcastic kind of air in the you know, vibe and, and feeling in the office. This phenomenon isn't just for these exterior uh, things of speech or, or uh, these light behaviors or ways of our attitudes, but they impact our society. They impact 
our culture. I remember my first job was I was a, I was a busboy at a restaurant, and I was stoked. I was 16. I could drive myself, and uh, all the coworkers would smoke, and I tried it, you guys. I just wanted to repent and confess it, and I smoked, and I hated it, um, so I wouldn't go back there, I, and I would tease them. I'm like, you're going on a smoke break. I get a breathe break, and so I'm going to go breathe. You go smoke. You'll die early. I won't, and no judgment, but if you think you are not influenced by the people, by the media, by your phones, by everything around you, I would dare to say that's foolishness. Or, and, you are more vulnerable or susceptible to be influenced by those people and things. It is true. It is real through music and art and, and every, everything around us is pushing in and pressing in on us and influencing us. And this is how, going back to the devil, that the lies are creeped in. And we walk in those lies because things become a little bit normal and it appeals to the disordered desires as Comer claims. And then we all walk around in the flesh and we meet up and see each other and you're walking in the flesh and I'm walking in the flesh and, and things are said or things are done. And, and pretty soon we have this sinful society that we're all walking in. Think about the values that change. These days, it's just, it's hard to, to hear it, but it's true that lust is now redefined as love. And so you hear terms that love is love, love wins. But who defines love? You hear things that marriage is redefined, not as this covenant of like lifelong fidelity, but this contract where we just meet each other's needs. And when you're not meeting my need, I'm out. So the sacredness of that union is just reduced down to almost nothing. Divorce, and I know this is sensitive because there's a lot of divorced couples and I feel for you. But in society as a value, I'm talking about. I'm not talking about you. I'm, as, a, as a society, we almost look at it as an act of courage and independence of just like, yeah, go be you. You're shackled by that marriage. Just get divorced and go be you. Instead of this is a breaking of a vow. And I know that could be a hurtful thing, and I want to be sensitive there, but marriage is sacred, and in our society, it's no longer sacred. It's just true. Or what about women's, the objectification of women's sexuality in porn? Like, it's empowerment. She's just making money. She has a career now. And that's a value of our culture, almost, it seems. Or what about Greed. When the dad just runs over everyone at work, no matter what the ethics, ethical lines he has to cross, he's doing it because it's a responsibility, right? I need to achieve for my family. And so we use that excuse, and that's become normal. Comer talks a little bit about this in a quote where he says, theology becomes therapy. The biblical interest in righteousness is replaced by a search for happiness holiness by wholeness, truth by feeling, ethics by feeling good about oneself, and yet the world shrinks to the range of personal circumstances. The community of faith shrinks to a, small, a circle of personal friends. The past recedes, the church recedes, the world recedes. All that remains is the self. In seeking the self, in us doing us, in following our heart, or doing what feels good has become the social ethic of our day. 
That is what we strive to do. And yet it makes me so worried for us. And you may think like, Scott, it's not that big of a deal, right? Like I have my faith too. As long as I'm not hurting anyone, I can do what I want to do. But if you are a disciple of Jesus, this should concern you. If you have the Holy Spirit who resides inside of you, this should concern you, and you should ask yourself a few things. You should ask yourself how you've been assimilated into the world and the culture. Think about it. Think about your phone activity. Think about what you do at home when you're escaping or numbing. Think about all the things that you do and, and say and what you think about. Remember last week, think about what you think about. Think about those things. How, how are you assimilated into the world and the world's culture? Think about where have you drifted from your identity in Christ and the inheritance that he offers you. Where are you not holding to your identity? Maybe it's at work or at home or with a friend. Think about how in everyday life, how can you resist the enemy of the world? The devil and the flesh and the world is a difficult, difficult three enemies. How, what are you going to do? How are you going to resist them? And so the tendency for us in the Western church is to create some type of, some type of like mixture or, or DIY form of faith. And so we say, hey, I have Jesus, but I'm also very consumeristic. I also strive for self. There's individualism inside of me. I also agree with some of the secular, secular sexual ethics of the world. I also think that my political pride is, is a priority for me. And so it's a mixture of all these things when Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. I'm the Lord over all those things. Where you're throwing Jesus in the mix, he's saying, no, I should be on top. I should have the authority over those things in your life. My word, my truth, my lordship, my authority, my say. And yet we see cultural Christians just not agreeing and going their own way. It all starts and begins with, in week one, what we called logismoid, those mental maps, those thought patterns, all the lies that we begin to see and feel and hear and, and we begin to believe in and walk in, all those deceptive ideas that turn into disordered desires that we walk into. And it's hard because it seems like we'll never get out of that pattern. We'll never get out of that cyclical thing. We become and look like and feel like and talk like part of the world. And so what do we do? So as individual Christians, that's the question. What do you, as an individual, your personal responsibility, your personal next step, what should you do? Should you retreat, get out of the world, go and hide, or should you dive fully in? But we need to know and remember constantly that the formation of our minds is where that fight is. That's where the war is. Because the honest truth is that the world is discipling you. The world is discipling me. It's trying to. It is. It's all over, right? It is trying to form you into another image, and that image is not Christ. We must resist by being counterformed. So there's two options for us. There's two avenues. There's two pathways for you and I if we are Christ followers. And we actively have to live out one of those two options, either deny Jesus and follow self or we deny self and follow Jesus. There's no other option. 
We have to make a decision every day, every hour, every time we're up against something, every time we're not up against something and we need to prepare ourselves. Are we going to deny Christ and follow self or deny self and follow Christ? And if you deny Jesus and follow self, what you're saying is you're, you're taking Jesus off the throne and you're putting the crown on your head and saying, it's me. I'm the authority over my life. It's my comfort, my pleasure, my desires. It's my future anyway. It's my heart I need to follow. I need to do what makes me feel good. It's about me. It's about self. Or the other option is you deny yourself and follow Jesus. And so you look at those desires as surface level desires, but your deeper desire is to know Christ and be known by him and know his word and his truth. And you say, he is going to be the Lord of my life. I'm going to put the crown off of myself and on him. And that exchange has to happen constantly. We talked about it last week. Remember last Thursday, if you took that challenge and fasted until 3 p.m., it was hard, right? <laughs> it wasn't easy. It was hungry. You know, some of us were hungry by seven. And you're like, oh, shoot, how am I going to get through this? But the practice and, and that experience of denying self to then walk in the spirit and prompted our hearts. Every time we were hungry, every time we were prompted, hopefully you got those prompts. You, we wanted to walk in the spirit and say, God, be with me. Help me. I draw myself close to you. And that's that exchange where you don't just deny and sit there. You deny yourself and you feed yourself God's truth, his word, his love, his gospel. It's him. It's him. It's not me. That was the goal. His famous words in Matthew 16 ring true. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel, that's when they'll save it. That's when you find freedom. That's when you find truly how to save your life. It's about detaching ourselves so that we won't fall into the sway and to the wind of the world. We might be anchored in Jesus and his truth. So on an individual level, our calling, our mandate is to deny ourselves. But let me say something about that because you, some of us believe we can do that by ourselves. You can't. You will fail. You will fail. After the nine I'm sitting there and I have someone crying because he's like, you're right, I've been doing this alone. I'm all alone in this. And I'm saying, no, you're not. You've been living like you're alone, but you're not alone. And if you continue to do this and fight this alone, you'll fail and we'll have this again. So what are you gonna do? What are we gonna do? Scott, you've been asking that without answering the entire sermon. You're right, let me answer it. I will answer that. What are we to do? Here's what we're to do. Here's the answer to the question. How do we resist the world? We be the church. You're like, wow, really profound, Scott. <laughs> be the church. Yes, that is the true answer. The church is not a religious building. It's us. It's you and I. We are the church the Greek word in the New Testament is ekklesia. It's those who are called out, the called out ones. Remember Jesus' prayer. He sent us into the world. We are sent ones. We are called ones. So we are not a community of comfort. We're a community of calling. And some of us need to make that shift of like you're, you're coming to get fed or if you don't like this church, then you're going there to get fed and it's cool. You don't like this one, go to that one but embed yourself into the church. Commit yourself to the church, to be the church, not to just submit to things, 
But to be in the community, in the body of believers, that's God's design. As we're going through the book of Acts, you should see that. That's God's design, is we are to be the church together, to live life together, to uplift each other, to hold each other accountable. You call me out, I call you out. We love each other, we read the word together, we pray together, we are to be the church. Jesus had disciples, not a disciple. There's community that he had designed for all of us. We can't follow Jesus alone. You will fail. I will fail if I do that. That is the call for us. We are supposed to be different, to be separate. New York pastor John Tyson says that being this countercultural community, the church in the world, is to be what he termed a beautiful resistance against the three enemies. I love that term, this beautiful resistance, because we do it together, and there's beauty in falling in line with God's design for us in a community. But in order to do that and resist the enemies together, there's three things that us as a church must become. And here's the first one. We must become a community of deep relational ties in a culture of individualism and isolation. Our culture says, do you, follow your heart, and be yourself, like go into your individualism. And it's completely counter to what God had designed for us. We're supposed to be interdependent, interconnected with one another. Our lives are enmeshed with one another. So in this culture of you do you, or live your truth, or follow your heart, it's in complete contrast to God's word. That's not what the New Testament says. And if we believe in the inerrancy of scripture, we are to look at that and say, how does that become authority over my life instead of me having my own authority over my life? Think about that practice of confession. I hope you did that last Thursday as you were fasting. If you did, there's something, I know that happened. If you did it with a safe and trusted person, there was relief. There was a release that happened inside of you. It's beautiful. And you didn't feel judged because you were with someone safe. I hope this happened. And there was this relief of like, ah, I don't have to hide anymore. Like, I don't have to hold that in anymore. I can just lay that down and just be prayed over and hear some truth from somebody. There's something beautiful that happens there. Comer says that in deep, vulnerable, interdependent relationships that stand in sharp relief to the superficiality and autonomy of our day, that is what we are meant to be. We are meant to be a community of relational ties with one another. The second thing is we're meant to be a community of holiness in a culture of hedonism. We think of that word holy and we think, oh, someone's holier than thou. Like they're more moral than I am. The, the old Hebrew word really meant set apart. It's something special. It's something unique. It's something different. And it was for something special. And so think of like grandma's fine china. Like no one's breaking out, like bringing home McDonald's and breaking out the fine china and putting it on there. Like nobody's doing that. The fine china was unique. It was special. It was set over here in the china cabinet. Remember that? It was set in the china cabinet and then on special occasions you would bring out. So because it was for something special, it wasn't for other things. That is you and I. We are meant to be like that. We are meant to be holy people that are separate, that are special, that are unique. We're not better than, we are humbled by the gospel. But we are marked by holiness. And because we are for something special, God, we aren't for other things. 
And so we don't look down on the world, but we also aren't supposed to participate in all the things that the world offers us. We are sent into the world so that the world can be transformed by the gospel through us. That's what we are meant to be. Hedonism is just doing what feels good. The world strives to do what feels good while we strive to do good for the kingdom of God. Shane Pruitt is a guy who, who says this. The goal of the gospel is not to affirm you, celebrate you, or empower you to do whatever you want to do. The goal of the gospel is to rescue you, transform you, and empower you to do whatever God wants you to do. You see the shift there. Almost the first sentence is like, I don't like the way this is going, man. <laughs> like, I want to be affirmed a little bit, like celebrate me a little bit. We do want to feel good. But the goal of the gospel is to rescue us, to transform us, and to say, God, what, what call do you have on my life? What would you do with me? How can I be useful to you? And we submit ourselves under his calling on our life. We are meant to be those type of people, those unique, holy, special people. It means we show up to work differently. It means we spend our free time differently. It means we spend our money differently. It means we engage in political discussions differently. It means our social media is different. There's something different about us. How we do marriage and sexuality and, and friendships and, and coworkers and all those things are meant to be different for you and I. We're meant to be holy. We're meant to be different. Comer also says that we must discover the joy of conviction in a culture of compromise. So we have to be convictional about this calling on our lives. We can't just say, ah, oh, I'll do it and I'll try. It has to be a conviction inside of us. And if we do that, we will stand in stark contrast with the culture, with the world around us. And thirdly, we're meant to be a community of order in a culture of chaos. When, we, when the world is going crazy and nuts, we're meant to be the calm presence in the room. You and I are meant to walk in the room and, and people go, oh, there's something different. They're not freaking out like everybody else. They know something we may, maybe don't know. And instead of knowing something, it's that we know someone. And so we're set apart. We're different. When you read church history, whenever the world turned into chaos, wars, or whatever, the church turned toward order. And they turned to this orderly way of living in the way of Jesus. In the fourth century, the Roman Empire started to fall. And what did the followers of Jesus do? They did retreat, and they went out into the desert, and they created these monasteries. And these monasteries were meant to be this, this kind of this rock and pillar and place you can go to have order of your life, to recoup, and then go back out. And that was the, that was the purpose of them, so that we can be in a people of order, and they created what's called the rule of life. Don't think of that as a bunch of rules. And if you know me, I love the rule of life. I love spiritual practices. I won't talk a ton about it. But I am such a fan of organizing our lives around ways to connect us with our Lord. And so a rule of life is a set of, uh, a set of practices and a schedule of relational rhythms that we organize our lives around the Jesus invitation to abide in him. 
into creating an environment and a culture and a way of living our every single, single days of life that where our deepest desires are fulfilled, our connection with God. So if you have questions about that, ask me. I can send you resources. But here at Grace as a church, we have an order. We have a way we've organized our church to do life together and to be together. And so you, the Sunday service is important. It's like an anchor for us, right? You're here, and you're here when, it's, when there's weather out. So you're better than the rest of them. <laughs> but it's not everything. And if you only go to a Sunday service, I would kindly say that you're missing something very unique and special. You're missing house church. You're missing what's called huddle. You're missing the things that this church has organized around to give life and to do life to, uh, with each other and to be the community that Comer is talking about and the Bible talks about. So we have tons of house churches that we believe is, is a method and a way for us to encourage each other, to hold each other accountable, to love each other, to remind ourselves of the goodness of God so that we could resist the devil, the flesh, and the world. And so we have tons of house churches, and I'm like, if you're not in a house church, you need to be. You need to be. Or go to a church where you're in, ingrained in those small groups and those house churches, but, but be together with the people. Live life with the people. We also know that if we want to be a community of holiness in this culture of hedonism, we have to be interdependent and we have to support one another. And so we have ministries here. We have care and recovery ministries to help support us. And some of you, like I, I talk to some who are struggling with addiction or sexual sin or just all kinds of different things. I'm like, we have things for you. We have people for you that will come around you, not judge you, but love you, support you, talk to you about the truth, give you the truth from God's word and say, here's what Jesus says and pray over you and be there for you. And when we do these things and become this type of community, we do become a minority in the world, right? We do become what the Bible refers to as a remnant. We're different. Like Jesus was the ultimate remnant. He was different. He was different than any other rabbi, any other Jew, any other person on earth. Paul says it this way. At the present time, there is a remnant, speaking of Christ's followers, chosen by grace. And so this minority or this remnant, that's who we are supposed to be. We're supposed to be different. We're not judging. We're not scared of the world. We don't hate the world. But we're in the world, and we are countercultural, and we are community together. One last quote from John Tyson on this subject. He says, a Christian community in a web of stubbornly loyal relationships, I love that, knitted together in a living network of persons in a complex and challenging cultural setting who are committed to practicing the way of Jesus together for the renewal of the world. And so if you've been sitting on the sidelines for a while, like waiting for an invitation to jump into a church, here's your invitation. Here's your, you're invited. We love you. God loves you. He'll probably mess with you a bit. But you're invited in. In a way, as we wrap up this mini-series, I was thinking about the fact that this storm is like this perfect analogy for ending this. Because this world is the devil's domain. And the three enemies of the world or against our soul, are real. And we can either wake up and, and there's a, a hurricane in front of us and we have to get ready real quick. 
or we could live differently and be ready all the time and do it together. That is my prayer for us, that we would look at the devil, the flesh, and the world, and it honestly, it would not stand a chance under the power and the strength and the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray that, that we would be those people. Heavenly Father, I pray for us as we come and listen to a sermon about these enemies. God, may it grab a hold of us and not just be helpful, but be transformative inside of us. We looked at the devil and the lies that the devil gives us and offers us and suggests to us. And we are able to look at ourselves in a beautiful way. We are able to convictionally look at ourselves and say, I'm believing in these things or I'm living in these things. And this is what it looks like in my flesh. So I want to starve the flesh and walk in the spirit. And today as it comes full circle and how it plays out in the world and how this third enemy, the world has influence in our lives. God, we look to you and we say, would you create in us a community that would be interdependent, interconnected, that would live differently, separately, maybe wholly, and that we may be formed in the image of you and not the world. Maybe we'd be ordered and organize our lives under your formation and not be formed by the world. Father, we love you. We pray that you would help us. In Jesus' name, amen.